we gather together at this Christmas Eve service, it is, it may be one of the few, if not the only service that we have where our whole families get to sit together and the kids and all of us are together. And I'm going to ask if your kids cry or if they want to talk, listen, that's okay. None of them are going to bother me. That's part of just being together in the family and we're grateful that we can have this time together. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, over these next few moments, what we ask is that your will would be done, that you would somehow open the doors to our heart, speak with love and grace and conviction through your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would knock down every hindrance that we have to responding to you, and that for those of us that are in relationship, we might be reminded tonight of the joy of Jesus. And for those that may be here tonight because they were invited guests or family that may never have had an opportunity or perhaps they have resisted in the past, that tonight would be the night that changes their lives in eternity. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I wanna share with you for just a few minutes on the topic of he humbled himself. We have been, for those of you that have been joining us all December and for this Christmas Eve service, this is effectively our Sunday service, which would have taken place tomorrow. And so I wanted to continue on with this series that we have been in. And for those of you that may not have been a part of that, I certainly want to allow you to know that you can go to our website and all of the messages that have been a part of this Backstage for Christmas series are available to you. But we recognize tonight that there are many attitudes and many experiences that surround the Christmas season. One of the first things that I heard tonight when we came into the church was how many of you were greeting each other with Merry Christmas. Because we recognize that one of the attitudes that we have at Christmas is merriment. Happiness. We sing about it. We wish you a Merry Christmas. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Many of your favorite Christmas songs probably have the terms in it of Merry Christmas. Another attitude that so often is associated with Christmas. For those of us that are Christians, it certainly shouldn't be just Christmas, but it is at Christmas is the attitude of joy. In fact, one of the most famous Christmas hymns begins with the line, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. It's the angels that the, the, the message that the angels brought to the shepherds when they said, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be to all people. For today in the city of David, there's been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then I recognize that the older we get as we approach Christmas, the more that the memories of past Christmases begin to percolate to the surface. I've already had conversations with those that this Christmas is different than last Christmas because of the memories of some of you that had family members that were here last year that are not here this year. There are certain songs that come to our mind, and the moment they do, our minds are captured back into a different time and place, and we remember those things. And for those of us that can remember some great Christmases with our families, we look back, and the memories that come along with this are phenomenal. In fact, there are songs that we sing, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, Jack Frost nipping at your nose. If that's not true tonight, then you've parked really, really close. <laughs> Yuletide carols being sung by a choir. And in Syracuse, we know what this looks like with folks dressed up like Eskimos. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever eaten a chestnut that's been roasted on an open fire? 
Five of you. It was a bad camping trip, wasn't it? All of these attitudes and emotions are things that we experience at Christmas time, but there's one attitude that I believe that is often overlooked in the Christmas season, and that is the attitude of humility. If the actions of Jesus taught us anything, it is that the theme of Christmas is humility. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, and if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn to there. If you don't, then I believe that it will be displayed for you. But I've, if you have your Bibles on your phones, and I'm going to ask that you would turn to that because we're going to have a Christmas Bible study tonight out of this passage of Scripture. The passage says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found as appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. As I've said, for those of you that have been joining us on these December mornings and Sunday mornings that we have had, we have been taking a peek at the backstage part, we've not necessarily been looking at the birth narratives that are found in Luke and Matthew, but we've been looking at other passages that gives us a glimpse into the power of what is taking place. And if you look at verse 6 of our text, it says, Paul is speaking, and he says, who being in very nature God. Now, for the past couple of Sundays, we have spent quite a bit of time talking about the fact that Jesus is eternally and truly and totally God. And tonight, you need to anchor that in your thoughts, that he is eternally and truly and totally God. And I want you to notice that the NIV version gets to the essence of things using the phraseology, who being in very nature God. Now, this uses the Greek word morphe, which we get our word metamorphosis from, indicating to us that the form of God is a description of one who possessed inwardly and displayed outwardly the very nature of God himself. So the Son, who is about to become incarnate, possessed the glory of God, the likeness of God, the image of God, and the splendor of God. In fact, everything that makes God God, everything that caused the angels to adore God was there in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason that the text begins there, I believe, is so that you and I who are readers and studiers of this can can capture the staggering impact of what happens next. The Holy Spirit wants us to have a complete understanding of where Christ came from. And so in the Christmas narrative, the shepherds are standing in the fields. It's at nighttime. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. The sky suddenly is filled with the splendor and magnificence. And a song comes forward from this. And a company of heavenly hosts praising God and saying... Glory to God. Now, if you were a shepherd that night, just tending your flock and being out there on a normal evening, it might have surprised you. And they begin to sing, and in light of where the child had come from, it's not a real surprise that they showed up. In fact, it would be a surprise to us if God had left the splendor of heaven and there had been no announcement of the glory that he had enjoyed for eternity. But the writer makes it very clear, being in very nature God. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. 
In other words, instead of holding on to his uninterrupted glory, he chooses to set it aside, although he is under no obligation to do so. And he comes to our fallen world, our helpless world, and he does so on our behalf. That's the essence of what is being said here. So quickly tonight, I want to do three things. First of all, I want to look at what the text says. I want to discuss what it means, and then very quickly, I want to make a couple of points of application before we sing with our candles tonight. What does the text say? I want you to look at it. For those of you that regularly read your Bible every day, we get into a habit of seeing what the Bible says, and sometimes we need to really look at it so we can gap, capture what it means. And in verse 7, it says this, made himself nothing, or literally, that can be interpreted as Himself he emptied. In the King James Version, if that's your favorite version to read, it says he made himself of no reputation. What does this say? What does this say about Christ coming to the world? The fact that he chose not to arrive in a fashion that is so marked by dignity and style that it would be immediately recognized by the people around him where people would say, oh, this must be God incarnate. This must be what we have been waiting for. He chose not to arrive in that fashion. In fact, you'll remember that the message to the shepherds were this. This will be a sign to you. And I have to imagine they're going, okay, what's, gonna, what's the sign going to be? You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. So far, so good. Lying in a manger. What a strange sign. Not that the shepherds were unfamiliar with mangers and stables. It was a part of their everyday life. It was certainly part of their routine. But a child in a manger. What child is this who would be laid to rest in a manger? Notice quickly that the sign of Jesus' arrival was not a chariot parked outside of the stable, but a manger. It was not a scepter, but a stable. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. In other words, he became as much an earthly servant as he had been a heavenly sovereign. And Jesus lived out this servanthood in his life. For those of you that are familiar with John chapter 13, you know that there was a time when he was with his disciples and he gets up and he takes off his outer clothes and wraps a towel around himself and he walks over to each of them, washing their feet and drying it, their feet with this towel, indicating the servanthood, taking on the very nature and role. Thirdly, the scripture tells us that he was made in human likeness. Now, we look at this and say, what does it mean that he was made in human likeness? What does it say? It says that he became something he'd never been before. He became a man, and he looked just like other men. In fact, it tells us in verse 8 that being found in appearance, a man from all appearances, if you were to look at Jesus, he looked just like every other man. So let me restate, here's what we are looking at, here's what we are reading. Himself he emptied, or he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, made in human likeness, found in appearance as a man. Now that we know what it says, we have to do the hard work. What does it mean? What does it really mean? And I believe that when we read the word, it's important for us to stop often and say, what does this mean? Now... I'm asking you not to necessarily say, well, what does this mean to me? Because there's some danger in that when we look at the Scripture and say, well, this is what it means to me. 
I'm not asking you to think about what it means to you because the real issue is not what it means to us. It's what does it really mean? In fact, interesting enough, I know that there are a number of pastors in the room tonight. Many of us have spent a great deal of our pastoral ministry in counseling people, sometimes out of what they think the Bible means to them because they've always looked for the loopholes. They've looked for the jumps and the skips and they say, well, this is what it means to me. And what they're really saying is, if this is what the Bible means to me, then this is what it really means. Let me warn you tonight, that's not necessarily true. First of all, we need to know what it means. What does it mean when it says, himself, he emptied? What does it mean when it says, himself was made nothing? Well, first of all, if we look at that, we can't take that literally because if Jesus literally made himself nothing, then he made himself right out of existence. If we look at that, said he made himself nothing so that he couldn't be a man. We know that that doesn't fit with the rest of the scripture. In fact, the Greek word that is used here when it talks about making himself nothing does not mean cease to exist. It means that God, when he became man, was fully man. We have heard propounded in the past that, well, he was God, and then he made himself man, but when he was man, he wasn't God. And then when he finished his work here, he became God again and ascended. And frankly, that is the threshold of which many cults today espouse their view from. But it can't mean that he ceased to be God either. Because those of you that are studiers of Scripture know that in Matthew, tells us in his gospel... And the key to understanding Matthew is recognizing how many times he says in his gospel, this very Jewish gospel, all of this took place to fulfill. Matthew says that all the time. And he says, now all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. They will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we know that he didn't leave his godliness behind. And at that doesn't mean literally that it became nothing, then, then how are we to look at this? I believe that if you look at your scripture, you'll get a hint of what it means in verse 7. Because after the word nothing, there's a comma, and then there's another verb that is there. That's the verb taking. Made himself nothing. Taking. So there's a link between the nothing and the taking. Alec Motyer a wonderful scholar suggests that it would be helpful for us in this Bible study of Christmas time to ask the question not of what did he empty himself, but to better understand this, the question should be into what did Jesus empty himself? If we ask what did he empty himself into rather than what did he empty himself of, we will begin to get a closer understanding of what this really means. It says he emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant. In other words, it's a fantastic paradox. In other words, it was what the Lord took upon himself that humbled him, not what he left. As we begin to think about that, we're going, well, that's interesting because it was in taking to himself humanity that he became nothing. Now, of course, for those of us human beings that are think pretty highly of ourselves and stuck up and think that man is the apex of it all. We can't imagine anybody that would not want to be a human being. We can't imagine anybody that wouldn't want to be excited about being a man or a woman. Well, if you were God and you had to come down the natural birth canal of a woman 
born this way to be placed into a manger, to live as an outcast, to die as a stranger, to bear the abuse and the curse of the law. It sounds like nothing to me. Now, there's no analogy, and I really, really tried to think of some great analogies that would fit this. And frankly, there is no analogy that comes close to expressing this, but it doesn't stop me from trying. I don't know how many of you are golf fans, but there is a man by the name of Andrew Martinez who is one of the top 25 of all time through the history of golf caddies. Those that know him recognize that he has caddied for some of the greatest golfers in the history of the game. He's caddied for Johnny Miller and Lehman and many of the others. He himself as an individual, his friends will tell you, is quite a man in his own right. He not only is an excellent golfer, he's a better tennis player. People say his personality and his intellect is, is at the level of being genius. When asked what he's best at, he said, I'm the best backgammon player that I know. Andrew Martinez is an impressive somebody in his own right. But every week on the PGA Tour, he makes the transition from being Andrew Martinez to caddy. And when he puts on those white coveralls and he steps out of the pro shop, he takes on the identity of the golfer with whom he is going to serve and his name is not even on his own clothes. He is a somebody who in his own right has now become essentially a nobody in order that he might serve others. So it's not by diminution that he makes himself nothing. It's by addition that he makes himself nothing. He doesn't cease to be what he is just because he's wearing silly white coveralls. But it's what he has poured himself into that made him a servant. And he constitutes a different entity. And I believe that that's the picture here. Christ comes and pours himself into flesh, pours himself into humanity without giving up his deity, assuming a human nature, fully God, but truly man. And some of you that are looking at your scripture going, okay, well, pastor, if, it, if it's true that he's truly God and he's truly man, then why does it say in verse 8 that he was found in appearance as a man? Doesn't that sound like the writer is trying to tell us that although he looked like a man, he wasn't really a man, he just had the appearance of a man? Well, again, I'm going to ask you to think as we look at this. What Paul is not saying is that although Jesus is not a real man, he looked like he was. What he is saying is that to all appearances, he didn't look any different than his disciples. To all appearances, if you were to come across Jesus in a crowd, your kids wouldn't point at him and say, oh, that's the incarnate son because he's got a halo over his head. Or, oh, we know that that's Jesus because his skin is so shiny. No, there was no halo, no supernatural glow. In fact, if you had spent 24 hours with him, you would discover that he gets hot, he gets cold, he gets thirsty, he gets hungry. As Cindy and I were talking about this passage last week, I asked her the deeply theological question of what do you think Jesus' morning breath smelled like? That's the depth of our devotions. Yet although he was in the appearance of a man, he was not merely what he appeared to be. There was something more about him. And isn't that what we discover when we read the gospel records and we 
see the disciples as they're beginning to build a picture about who this individual is that they have committed their lives to. In fact, we know that there's one time that they're out on the Sea of Galilee. And they're in the middle of a squall and the waves are beating and Jesus is asleep up in the front and the disciples are concerned about each other. They're they're worried that somehow in the middle of this their boat is going to capsize and that they're all going to drown. And in the middle of this they're going, isn't it amazing that Jesus can sleep through this? And he's up there in the front with his head on a pillow and he's not even concerned that we're about to die. Why don't we wake him up? And so they wake him up and say, Jesus, are you not concerned? And Jesus stands up. And he rebukes the winds and the waves. And then they say this, What manner of man is this? What kind of man is this? In other words, he appears to be just like the rest of us. But none of us can calm the seas. None of us can heal the lame. None of us can restore sight to the blind. H.G. Wells Remarking similarly on this says, I am a historian. I am not a believer. But this penniless preacher from Galilee is irresistibly the center of history. Some of you here tonight or those of you that may be watching us online would have to say, I am not a believer. I do not believe in Jesus. He's not my Lord. He's not my Savior. I do not enjoy fellowship with him. I've never enjoyed friendship with him. But I do have to say that Over 2,000 years later, we're gathered together to service because he is still irresistibly the center of history. And so for those of you that are Broadway fans, and maybe you have heard the songs of Jesus Christ Superstar, Mary Magdalene is not right when she sings in this musical, and he's just a man. He's just a man. And I've seen so many men before in many different ways He's just one more. Well, he appears to be. He was found in appearance as a man. But there's more to Jesus than meets the eye. Honestly, that's what we need to say to our friends. That's what we need to share with our neighbors. There's more to Christ than meets the eye. Have you ever considered this? Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever sifted the evidence? Have you ever read a gospel? Have you ever examined the facts? If you do, you will come to the conclusion. There's more to Jesus than we ever knew. Moving now into our final point. We've read and seen what it says. We've examined what it means. Quickly, I would like to point out two points of application. How do we apply it? You'll notice that in the context of the passage that we read tonight, at the very beginning, Paul is exhorting the Philippian believers. He's encouraging them to make sure that they have a tender heart toward one another, making sure that we have compassionate spirits to each other, that we work with one another, that everything that we do is marked by love in the way that we interact with each other, that we would set aside selfish ambition and conceit, and that our approach to life would be that we would consider others better than ourselves. At the very heart of this passage is a call to humility. Christmas is a call to humility. And let me just say that your attitude should be the Christmas attitude. You see, Jesus did not approach Christmas Eve with the the attitude or with even the question of what is in it for me. 
Jesus did not approach the incarnation asking, what do I get out of this? He approached the incarnation. He approached Christmas Eve. He approached being born into our world with the attitude of, I don't matter. I don't matter. Jesus, you're, you're going to be laid in a manger. It doesn't matter. Jesus, you're going to have no place to lay your head. It doesn't matter. Jesus, you're going to be an outcast and a stranger. It doesn't matter. Jesus, you're going to go around doing good and people will completely misunderstand you. It doesn't matter. Jesus, you're going to be nailed onto a cross and people are going to say unkind things about you and your followers will even desert you. And Jesus says, that's okay. Why is that okay, Jesus? Because of what I'm coming to do. Now, you think about the average local church. Not only just a local church, but some of you can think about even in your own families. Where do the problems with fractured relationships and splintered relationships come from in, in any church family and sometimes even in our own personal families? Every single time, what you can trace it back to is a somebody. A somebody who is very concerned. He's very concerned that people know who he is. She's very concerned that people be known what she has done. He's very concerned with everybody knowing what he's achieved and how important she is or what her expectations are, how they should have influence in the family or within the church. Everybody should know this about me. And the result of this is the very antithesis of I don't matter being replaced with I matter supremely. And all of you should know. And the relationships among God's people are fractured and splintered and spoiled and destroyed. And when Augustine was asked, what is the central principle of the Christian life? He replied, number one is humility, number two is humility, and number three is humility. And if we are being honest tonight, the factor of humility is largely gone from Christmas. It's largely gone because tonight our children and our grandchildren are convinced that Christmas is about them. Tonight there are many people that are convinced that Christmas is largely about them. And, and we may nudge them a little bit and we may say, hey, hey, you know that there's really way more to this than just you and, and that it's really not about you. But we're really only paying lip service to it because the humility of Christmas has been replaced so easily with self-focus. And what the church requires according to this is not that it would be filled with somebodies, but that it would be filled with nobodies who have crucified their egos, who have crucified their desires. In fact, if you don't mind, I would love to paraphrase 2 Corinthians 8, 9, the scripture says, though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor. Does this work for you? At least in part, he who was a somebody became a nobody so that we who are nobodies might in Christ become somebody. And finally, the principle of humility is vital not only in our terms and attitudes toward each other and the, the way that we get along with one another in the church family or even within our own families, but the attitude of humility is absolutely vital if you want to know Jesus. 
In Luke chapter 10, verse 21, it says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and have revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, it was your good pleasure. If you think about that verse, it is staggering in what it means. And it's a real problem for some of us because our whole thing, our whole identity, our whole ego thing is based on the fact that I am somebody. I have a somebody factor. And it's directly related to our intellects and directly related to our egos. And this is why there are so many in our world that dismiss the Christian message. And they'll say, and maybe you're here tonight and would say this, oh, it's okay for little old ladies that need to put a blanket on the rocker to keep their legs warm or... Oh, you know, the Christmas message may be okay for those that have broken dreams. Or maybe it's okay for individuals who somehow lost their way on the highway of life and they're looking for a roadmap to get back on track. But, but for somebody like myself, for somebody who's trained, for somebody who thinks, for somebody who understands that I'm a pursuer of truth and I can see the deeper things and the higher things, how could I possibly, as a somebody, bend my knee to the truth of who Jesus is in coming to this earth? And, and what about my reputation? What would my friends think? After all, this whole Christmas, seems, Christmas scene seems so childish. And the wise and the learned say, no, if I'm going to meet God and if I'm going to know God, I'm going to do it on my terms and I'm going to do it with my own approach. No, you're not. No, you're not. Humbling yourself before the manger does not require you to be mindless or childish, just childlike. Just childlike. Worship team, if you'd come. A couple of weeks ago, I was watching a YouTube version of a piece of the story of a famous actor whose name many of you may know, Steve McQueen. What an amazing life and what a sordid life in many ways. But somewhere along the journey of his life, just before he gets cancer, he was taking flying lessons, learning to become a private pilot, and the teacher that was teaching him was a pastor. The pastor gives him the gospel and he hears it and Steve McQueen humbles himself and bows down with childlike faith and trusts in Jesus Christ and shortly thereafter discovered that he had cancer and as his life is ebbing out of him, he's attending 7 o'clock in the morning Bible studies on Thursday mornings. He's attending church services regularly in the local church and for three months after he is converted, he attends church and nobody knows who this man that's sitting by himself is. And he sits there with tears in his eyes listening to the Word of God. Nobody knows that he's a famous actor in his own right and that he may be a somebody to so many around him. And Steve McQueen is consumed with the wonder and the fact that although his life was shredded, his marriages were pathetic, his morals stunk, his addictions were out of control, that this God has made himself nothing in order that one who had thought himself something would discover that he was a nothing and in the discovering that he was nothing could become something. What a great story. That's the story of the gospel. It's the story of Christmas. 
And tonight we're provided an opportunity to observe the humility of Christ Jesus in action. As through his birth, we are provided the opportunity to humble ourselves with childlike faith and recognize he's not merely a man. There's more to Jesus than meets the eye. In fact, he's your only hope. And you will not be able to create your own pathway through your intelligence or ego to find a way to God. It is by bowing the knee to the babe in the manger at Christmas who became the conquering King of kings and Lord of lords. He was the greatest somebody who became a nobody so that we who are nobodies might become somebody through Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask that you would stand with me, please, and if you would bring your candles with you. Before we sing this last song, I want to give you an opportunity to just bow your heads for a moment, if you would. Maybe tonight God is knocking on the door of your heart, and you've tried to create your own pathway to God. Maybe you would say, I've, I'm not a believer, but... What I do recognize is no matter how I have tried, I cannot find a way to fill the emptiness in my own soul. And tonight at this Christmas Eve service, I've been presented with a thought that there's more to Jesus than meets the eye. The greatest somebody became nothing when he, not when he left heaven, but because he poured himself into human flesh. And lived the life of a man among us. And in doing so, provided me an opportunity to become a somebody through his work. Father, I pray right now that you would just begin to touch the hearts and lives of each of us here. As we conclude this service, whether it's a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, I ask that if there's anybody here that does not know you right now, that they would just simply with childlike faith say, Jesus... I believe in who you are and what you've done. I ask that you would forgive me of my sins and my arrogance and my pride and my belief that I am somebody and I humble myself before you recognizing that you're the greatest somebody and I come before you as a nobody asking that you would transform me and in the transformation that my life will be changed and my eternal direction would be remedied because of you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn on your candles, please, and would you lift them as we conclude this candlelight service with a song.
Thank you for the opportunity of taking a few moments and focusing on the true meaning of Christmas. Forgive us, Lord, for our selfishness. Forgive us for thinking that we are somebody. Forgive us for the things that we have done. And as we approach this, may we do so under the instructions of Paul. May we have the same attitude as that which is found in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself from being the greatest somebody, and he became a nobody, so that we who are nobodies could become somebodies through him. And I pray your blessing over every person that is here and everyone that is watching online. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Merry Christmas.